Welcome back to Bootability, a weekly interview series about the amazing ability people have to change our lives and the world if we're brave enough to tap into it. I'm your host, Jihi Jolly. Today we're addressing a topic that a number of listeners have emailed us about, which is navigating the loss of a loved one or supporting them through serious illness. While it's a heavy topic and became especially relevant in the last year, our guest, Jonathan Turan, is so incredibly inspiring, and I learned so much from his family's experience. Last year in August, he lost his father to pulmonary fibrosis, and today he shares how his family used their Buddhist practice to navigate the journey from finding him care, to supporting him during hospice, to dealing with the grief that came afterwards. On top of all of this, Jonathan himself is currently in residency, and his father's battle took place during the height of COVID in Texas, all while Jonathan himself was in his first few months as a resident physician. Hearing him talk about compassion in medicine, despite all he's gone through, was so eye-opening and encouraging. Let's meet Jonathan. Um, so I'm Jonathan Turan. Um, I'm 31 years old. Um, I'm calling from Mount Pleasant, Texas, um, and I am a resident physician in my second year. And how long have you been practicing SJN and Buddhism? Yeah, so um, I guess it's kind of like a uh, so I got the long answer. So the long answer would be, I was born into the practice. So both my mom and dad practice. And then, so when I was born, uh, you know, I was born into this practice, kind of did the general things of like chanting and going to a couple of meetings. But I think, uh, when I really started myself would be, uh, when I moved to Austin where I went for undergraduate and I was out on my own for the first time per se. And I think that's when I really took it up myself. I see. Do you do you remember? Um, and it's okay if you don't. But do you remember like when you first started chanting? Any like consistently? Any sort of changes that you saw in yourself, or how you felt, or anything like that? Yeah, for sure. I think um, so. Growing up, like we would we moved a lot, so um, you know it was it was always hard to have kind of like these lifelong friendships and um, uh, figuring out kind of like I guess how things move a certain way. So like, right, we lived in Mexico, we lived in Venezuela, we lived in Houston, and then eventually came back to the US, right? So um, like the whole cultural change was like a pretty big thing for me, my family. So like kind of getting adjusted to things like that was was difficult. <laughs> Even like taking standardized tests when they came to like uh, getting ready for college was a big problem. And then uh, even when it came to applying to like, yeah, so college, my senior year, I wasn't too sure like where I wanted to go or what was what were the options. So we had a couple of friends and they're like, hey, you should go to this one school. It's pretty good. So, so we said, yeah, okay. So we applied to that one school and that's what we did. Um, but yeah, I think once I started practicing myself, I think I got more confidence in things that I was doing. I wasn't as, um, I wasn't as shy either. I think, you know, I would go out and speak more with people and I started to come out a little bit more out of my bubble. I think before that, I was kind of like letting other people approach me. And then if they approached me, kind of start a conversation there or try and spark up a friendship. But 
once I moved out and I was in college and started practicing myself, yeah, I was able to develop more of my own confidence and yeah, I guess try and seek other people myself, if that makes sense. I don't know. Mm, yeah, it totally makes sense. And I can totally relate because <laughs> okay. I was the same way. So <laughs> very similar <laughs> experience. Um, and then, so now you're a second year resident. Um, how, mm-hmm. how did you decide to go into medicine or, or why? Yeah, so so the generic answer all physicians will probably tell you is I want to help people, which is true. Um, but yeah, I think for me it started, um, so probably like back in high school again, um, we had a pediatrician that me and my two younger brothers went to and he was like a super, super awesome guy. Um, super, super fun to be around, um, super easy to kind of ask questions to, made me feel comfortable, made my family feel comfortable. Um, and then I think the best part for us growing up was that he always had either like baseball cards or football cards for us to take at the end of the visit. <laughs> but, but, uh, but no, in a more serious level, yeah, I think I was just kind of blown away by um, basically the amount of knowledge he had and the fact that we could kind of come up with these questions out of the blue and, you know, he could either tell us what the answer was or he was brave enough to tell us that he didn't know the answer and he would look it up and let us know next time we saw him or that he would have the nurse call us back to let us know what the answer was. So I think kind of like, yeah, because he, he's an adult, right? My physician was probably like in his late 60s and I'm early teens. And then the fact that he kind of talked to me as an adult and then treated me kind of like the respect that I would see like adults treat each other at the same time, kind of knowing all this medical knowledge kind of really inspired me. But I think, you know, on top of that, um, I guess <laughs> the topic of today is kind of talking about illness and death. So, you know, um, we'll get into this a little bit more, but my dad struggled through two pretty big illnesses in his life. Um, so the first one was when he had um, uh, throat cancer. And then so during that time, we dealt with some physicians that were, yeah, incredibly humane. And they really like, they took their time to talk to us and really, um, you know, because we're, we're scared. <laughs> we're scared. My dad was was pretty sick. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were times when I thought like maybe he, even it seemed like maybe he wanted to give up a little bit. But, you know, we weren't ready for him to, we were all so young. And uh, so, you know, we want him to keep fighting. And I think, you know, seeing the doctors like kind of see our struggles and, and yeah, I mean, they, they treated him and, and they're able to cure his cancer and he became cancer free and he was cancer free up until the day he passed. So I think for me, that was definitely kind of like the point when I was like, oh yeah, for sure. I want to do this. I want to be able to provide this for other people. But my interest initially peaked, yeah, I guess in high school with the quote unquote cool pediatrician. So, yeah. (laughs) Wow. Thanks so much for sharing. Yeah. Did you ever tell that pediatrician? Um, I don't know if I did. Uh, I worked with a couple of other ones afterwards. So I told the other ones. I can't remember if I told him. Um, I should go back (laughs) and I should go back and visit him. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like he would, um, I imagine, be so encouraged and happy happy to hear that that he could have had that lasting of an impact you know but um but i see okay and and are you specializing in a certain type of medicine so i initially came into family medicine um so through med school right um years one and two we do a lot of um in the book training so we'll get like all like the base knowledge and then years three and four is when we go out and um we'll do more of like the actual medicine um, so we'll go out to the hospitals, work with the different specialists. So I had the chance to work, um, in this super small town out in West Texas called Alpine. 
Um, and then so there I worked with a family medicine physician and, uh, you know, I fell in love with what he was doing. So he was kind of like the full broad spectrum family doc where he served the whole community in like all of his capabilities. So, you know, what does that mean? You know, he had a clinic open, obviously, you know, family people do that. But at the same time, he was able to deliver babies. So, you know, he's doing like vaginal deliveries. He's doing C-sections. Um, at the same time, he works in the hospital, right? So he's taking care of patients that get hospitalized, you know, which is normally something that like internal medicine does, right? Obviously, delivery stuff is something that OBGYN does. And then since it's such a small town and you don't have the luxury of all these specialists, you know, he was also taking care of like pediatric patients, you know? So um, wow. I was like, I was, yeah, I was blown away. You know, that's kind of like when I think of a doctor, you know, that's kind of like the doctor I always imagine. You know, because nowadays we have super, super like specialized people who are amazing at what they do, right? There are like so few of them that are, oh, well, I specialize in doing this one specific thing and I am the best out there and you want to go see them, you know? Mm -hmm. But when you're out there in the middle of nowhere and you don't have access to all these different things, it's like you want to have someone that can really take care of you. And seeing him being able to provide that was amazing to me. And I think what was even more amazing was, you know, him being such a like, crucial aspect of that community and being so humble and so down to earth and just so easy for people to talk to like he was just a normal guy and I think that was amazing to me you know I think oftentimes kind of like for lack of a better word but that power or that um what's the, what's another word just kind of like the um the prestige that comes with it I feel like it sometimes get into people's heads mm -hmm. but man no he was he was a complete opposite and like I was like yeah, that's, that's what I want to do. So yeah, initially I came in also wanting to do the same thing. Um, and then, yeah, so that's why I'm out here in Mount Pleasant <laughs> in the middle of nowhere, Texas again. <laughs> um, uh, and then, so I'll be here for another year after this one. Your passion for medicine is like so palpable. It's so encouraging. Like, yeah, yeah it's amazing. Oh my cool. gosh. I'm sure your future patients and I'm sure your current patients will be so delighted and you'll have that impact i mean definitely that you described the other doctors had on you and your family so yeah very exciting but um yes we should stay on topic because otherwise i'm gonna okay. ask you a million questions about medicine <laughs> um sounds good so so you you already started to mention this but um i understand that you lost your dad last year and you said that he yes. he dealt with actually two major illnesses so whatever you're comfortable mm -hmm. sharing could you first sort of share with us what happened yeah for sure so yeah so my dad um for the most part pretty healthy kind of guy obviously he kind of dealt with all the regular chronic illnesses that i think most of the u.s has which would be like high cholesterol and uh, high blood pressure um mm -hmm. but for the most part he was pretty healthy um and then yeah all of a sudden uh he noticed that he was starting to have some difficulty swallowing I'm not too sure what it was, so he got sent to a specialist, so ENT. Um, they got a biopsy of basically a sample from his tongue and I guess kind of like upper esophagus. And then so at that point, they found that he had cancer. And then so, yeah, he went through that and then um, he was able to, yeah, basically beat the cancer. Um, but, you know, with it, he had his own the side effects, so like the cancer uh, so my dad was a bigger guy. So as you can imagine, he loved to eat, right? Which he passed down to his sons as well. So we all <laughs> love to eat. Um, but because of this radiation, um, it, it had effects on his taste buds. So he wasn't able to taste food as much as he was able to before. So there were those effects, but you know, he beat cancer. So 
you know, mm-hmm. so what? Yeah, so he was happy. He kept being the dad, the pa that we know, and he kept being his jolly self and working hard for us. And we're just minding our own thing. And then, yeah, so then the second time around, so this would be maybe like, man, what, like five, like eight, almost 10 years afterwards, he started to kind of have some issues with, with breathing. So he would get kind of like short of breath, um, mostly kind of with walking, you know, so going upstairs and whatnot. So you would think, oh, you know, maybe it's just kind of like deconditioning kind of picture. He hasn't been exercising, so it's maybe just part of that. Um, but then it kind of didn't go away. And then eventually they were they did a workup that showed that he had um, pulmonary fibrosis. And it was to the point where it was pretty extensive throughout his lungs. Um, so there were a couple of different medications that we could try mostly to kind of prevent further damage, not really to reverse anything. Um, so that's what we did. At this point, my dad's breathing had really deteriorated quite a bit. So uh, he was requiring oxygen at home, which was a big difference for us, right? Um, my dad was also a pretty proud guy. So he didn't like being seen with oxygen, you know? He thought that it would kind of make him look weak, you know? So initially he was struggling a lot with that. Um, but then, you know, he, he came to accept that it's part of his illness and that, you know, it's something that he needs to be able to survive. So he eventually became okay with it. He started wearing it to work at all times. You know, things started to get a little worse, little by little, um, breathing got a little harder. Um, so at this point, he didn't have too many options. So um, the big thing was we wanted to try and get him on the transplant list um, to have basically a lung transplant. But, you know, being on the list doesn't mean you're going to get your lungs or get your organs, right? There's people that are on the on the transplant list for years and years and years because you got to match with the right person that has you know, similar kind of makeup so that your body doesn't reject the organs, even with all the medications. And then something interesting with my dad too. So um, he's pretty short. <laughs> he's like 5'2", five 5'3". Five um, so petite guy. And because of that, his lungs were also small. So they were even considering that he may need pediatric lungs, right? So, so wow. if it was already difficult to, yeah. So if it was already difficult to try and find a donor, right? It's even more difficult now. Um, things didn't get better. Um, he was starting to have some more shortness of breath. So actually this now in the middle of COVID, um, he was at home, um, starting to get a little bit worse. And then um, he developed all of a sudden this like infection in his jaw. Um, this infection that could get into the actual bone itself, which would have gotten so much worse. And then we don't want that. So, you know, when COVID is rampant right now and everyone's too scared to go to the hospital, and my dad is already kind of uh, sick, right? His lungs aren't doing well. So if he got COVID, I mean, it's it's really like it's game over kind of thing. So um, we took him to the ER. Um, they they uh, admitted him into the hospital and they start him on some IV antibiotics to treat the, the jaw infection. And then, uh, as you can imagine, so he was there for a while and then really... Um, the whole time we couldn't visit him. Um, you know, they're worried that people from outside might bring the infection, right? They're worried that people from inside, once you go inside and you get the infection, you might carry it out. So it was very strict. So, you know, we would just talk to my dad daily on Zoom, on FaceTime, and it was pretty mm-hmm. difficult, right? And then, yeah, eventually he was able to get treated for that. But the bad part is um, he got to the point where the specialists, um, kind of all the specialists were now saying, that he would no longer survive the um, the surgery if he had transplant. So at this point, you know, we had to start talking about hospice care. Um, 
So, you know, for those of you that aren't aware, hospice care is kind of something that will start once someone has an expected life expectancy of about six months. Okay. And then at that point, it's really, we're not treating anymore, um, but more trying to make the person comfortable so that they have a good quality of life for what's left. So my dad came back. Um, he came back home, which is great. You know, he didn't have to be at the hospital by himself. He was home. And then, so it was my mom, my little brother, Nico, me, and then Vincent, he lived really close by, but he had his own place. So he would come often. Um, and then, yeah, we just really enjoyed having him back home. And then we had, we were fortunate enough to have three awesome months with him back home before he passed. And, uh, we spoiled the heck out of him. And, um, I, I like to think that he went being happy and being loved and, we were really able to treasure those moments and really come together as a family. And uh, I'm forever grateful for that time. So, Wow. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for sharing that whole journey. Yeah. I'm, I know it was only last year, too, so I'm sure it's still, still quite fresh for you. Um, but at the same time, I'm imagining there might be people listening who maybe like had a, a loved one, you know, lost to COVID, um, in a, in a, in a similar situation where maybe they couldn't see them. Um, maybe they couldn't mm -hmm. be with them. So I think there's just so much there that many people might be able to relate to. Um, so I, I want, so obviously we're going to talk about Buddhism, right? Cause the purpose <laughs> of the podcast is, um, to really try to understand, like, how can you apply Buddhism to navigate these things and how can you tap into what we call our Buddhability or this, these inner kind of fortitudes of compassion or wisdom or courage or whatever you need to really, um, you know, succeed and enjoy life and be happy despite these kind of hard circumstances. So that said, um, I imagine that you and your family were chanting through the process, but can you share, I, I remember you also told me on the phone that you kind of started a little kind of study routine with your dad too. So yeah, yeah how did you use your Buddhist practice through it? What role did that play? Yeah. Yeah, so I know, I think, uh, so So I had mentioned at the beginning that, you know, we were born into the practice, so we're really fortunate in that, in the sense that, um, for those of you that may not know people in the practice, um, it really gives, I mean, at least for me, it gave me a really solid sense of self and being able to really trust, um, I don't know, that I'll have this more courageous, compassionate, and wise version when the time needs to come. So first thing was we, um, we challenged as a family to make sure that we can chant more. Um, and then again, chanting so that, you know, we can basically bring out the best version of ourselves. And, you know, what does that mean? So even when it comes to my dad talking to physicians or, you know, the nursing staff being able to really be the best version of himself so that he can get the best care, you know, for us to really be able to have the best version of ourselves so that we can impact other people around us so that they can also be able to provide the best version of themselves when it comes to our care. Um, but then, yeah, so we challenged as a family to chant you know, every day, at least one hour together. So for us, it was 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. And then everyone lives in their own different places. And we actually got my half sister to also join us, Tati. Um, and then she also joined us. And then, you know, what's great is my dad has always wanted her to practice, you know. And then I think, you know, through this kind of struggle that we had as a family, she was able to really kind of tap into this as well. And then she really challenged herself to join us during those chanting sessions as well. 
Um, but like I said, my dad was really active throughout kind of his whole life and come to the, when it comes to the practice. But you know, something that he was kind of lacking was um, he didn't study as much as we, we would like to. You know, So the three pillars of our practice are faith, study, and um, oh man, I'm blanking. Practice. Faith, study, and practice. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's been a long day. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, faith, practice, <laughs> study. So um, he hadn't been studying as much. So I really wanted to take it up on myself to try and encourage him to study more. Um, so basically what that meant is um, my dad doesn't really like reading. Um, if he has free time, he's more the kind of guy to watch TV, which I don't blame him. Um, but, you know, I wanted to really challenge. So, <laughs> so yeah, we chose a book. And then I said, hey, Pop. I'll call you every day, 6.30 to 7. Uh, we'll read it together, and then we can discuss it the last five minutes. And then so initially just started out with me and my dad. Um, we chose a book. Um, uh, if you want to know, it's one called um, Wisdom of Low Sutra. There's six different volumes, so we started with book one. And wow. then so my dad at this point, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so then my dad at this point was starting to have some shortness of breath. So it actually what it ended up looking like was it was me reading to him, and then he would just listen and read along. And then um, when the five, we got the five minutes at the end, we would discuss it. So we did that day one. And then, eh, you know, it, was, <laughs> it wasn't flying colors. Um, it was definitely okay. I was able to get him to study, stay on the whole 30 minutes, which is great. But I could see how you get boring just listening to me for 30 minutes, just reading. Um, so at that point, you know, I really wanted to try and encourage other people to join too. So I, uh, I called to my brothers and then, uh, so Vincent joined the first time. And then, uh, I have a couple of other brothers in the practice per se. Uh, and then, so I asked, uh, for example, this time, the, the second time around, I invite my, my Buddha brother, uh, Danny to join us as well. And then, so it was now four of us, you know, including my dad. And then, you know, slowly like that, little by little, we start to invite more people. You know, it's like, I was really proud that Pa was able to keep studying with me and, and that he really challenged himself. You know, there were days that he really just wanted to fall asleep and not call in. I was like, Pa, you can't, man. These people are counting on you and being there. And, you know, it's, it's what we promised to do. So he would, he would call on and, and we would do it. And then so, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to say that before my dad passed, we were able to complete entirely um, the whole six books. And then um, we were able to read another two books before he passed. And uh, basically up till the very end, even if he wasn't able to really like respond anymore, we would make sure that the phone was next to him so that he could at least listen to what we were saying. And we'd still have discussion. And then overall, um, you know, I'm just so thankful for my SGI family too, for giving me that support and giving my family that support when uh, we were struggling so much, you know? So it's really, the Turan family was taken into the SGI family. And like I said, super thankful for that too. So yeah, that's what we did. As a family, we made sure to chant. And then, so we would study for 30 minutes and then we would chant for an hour. And wow. after that, we would only have a family conference call. But <laughs> yeah, so oh that was goodness. on a daily basis, yeah. <laughs> that is so, so incredible. You know, it, it made me think, I um, recently interviewed somebody um, and they were sharing about, I'm sure you know, the concept of um, the three treasures in Buddhism, of which the treasures of the heart are the most important. And the sort of example they mm -hmm. were giving were, was like, you know, if a person is sick, so treasures of the heart for, for anyone listening are basically like our human relationships and like what we treasure in our heart and the state of our life. And they were sharing that like um, when a person is sick, for example, if they are alone, 
versus if they're surrounded by people that they have great relationships with that care about them, their suffering can be cut in half. And it just mm-hmm. struck me like what you're describing is it's really that um, because the treasures of the heart are they're so rich in treasures of the heart, which, of course, chanting mm-hmm. and, and engaging in, in community like this can help us to build. So that's so amazing. I'm so moved that I'm sure I mean, I'm sure like, you know, it's going to be such a treasured memory for everybody who also participated um, in addition to your family. So. That's amazing. I I am curious if uh, I I don't know if you have something that kind of comes to mind, but for for people who are listening, Wisdom of the Lotus Sutra, it's like a pretty intense book series, but it's it's amazing because it's really like unpacking um, what the Lotus Sutra is, and of course it's by Daisaku Keda, but it kind of is a dialogue format, and Namyoho Rengekyo is you know a practice based on the Lotus Sutra. So, is there anything that you sort of discovered while reading that helped you navigate these questions of life and death? Because I know those are themes throughout the books. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's so interesting, so mystic, I think, when you study, um, for some reason, um, all of like, um, so uh, Daisaku Ikeda's writings, like, I don't know, they always hit close to home whenever you're going through struggles and, and you challenge yourself to study. So, you know, in this one, they're really talking about, like you said, you know, sickness and death. And then, you know, for us, it was kind of this imminent, or yeah, this, we just knew it was coming, right? So for us, we wanted to be ready for it. And then, you know, with Buddhism, it's more like, you know, death is just, you know, it's just part of life. It's what's going to happen. And it's, it's a given, right? So I think even kind of at a, at a younger age, we, we don't really become comfortable with it, but we know that it's coming, or at least me, I know that it's coming and I can accept it. Um, but then, yeah, so for me, I was really, the pra- the book, the reading really, helped me understand a little bit more of kind of like what happens, you know, with death and kind of what happens afterwards. And, you know, the analogy that they kept making is, you know, so when we're, when we're living, when we're alive right now, we're kind of like waves, right? And then, so in this practice, we always kind of talk about the universe and then they make the analogy of the universe being kind of like the ocean. So, you know, kind of like if you go to the beach, right, you'll see the wave come onto the shore and it'll break and it'll go back into the ocean, right? And it becomes just a part of the ocean. You can't really tell where the wave was. You can't tell where it started, where it finished. It's just part of the whole. And then that's kind of like how life happens with us as well. You know, when we're living, it's the wave. And then when we pass, we go back into this whole universe. Um, And then, you know, what's really, what kind of gets kind of like carried with it is what we call our karma, right? So these are different kind of, uh, what is it, these different causes that we're creating. Um, and then, you know, uh, our Buddhist practice can sometimes be be a little strict, but also very, it makes a lot of sense, right? It's like the causes can be made by our actions, our thoughts and what we say, right? Which is, oh man, I really shouldn't have thought about that, about that person, or I really shouldn't have said that. Because, you know, sometimes <laughs> I think that will slip. But, you know, it's, I mean, it's true, right? You're making those causes, you're making some negative causes when you're talking ill about other people and um, thinking those things. So, um, and then, you know, those are the kind of things that will get carried on. All that karma that you built up and it can be positive and good, right, gets passed on. And then when you become this new reborn person, it's based up on everything that you created. So the reason I like that so much is also the fact that once someone passes, right, and they're in this universe, it doesn't mean that they're solely stuck in that karmic situation that they created in this life. I think what was powerful for me 
was that as our as the loved ones that are still here, we can chant to try and change that for them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, without getting too much into like the nitty gritty, but we talk about different worlds, like the ten worlds, um, and you know, with like hell being the worst, where you're suffering at all times, and Buddhahood being the highest, right? So then we talk about you know someone could have this life state of hell, where basically when they were alive, they're they're struggling through a lot, you know, different things can be tossed at them. And their baseline is kind of anger and just hatred and, you know, just a lot of suffering, right? It doesn't mean that from that point, they can't become, you know, go into this Buddhahood, but, uh, you know, that's kind of their base. So let's say someone were to pass and that were their base, you can chant for them so that that's not the same case now that they're in the universe or now that, um, they're reborn again. And for me, that was pretty powerful because, you know, I mean, in reality, once someone passes, I mean, that's it, you know, it's like they're gone and you got the memories, but it's like, I feel like I'm still connected and I'm still making causes for Pa, even though I won't, I don't know who Pa will be again, you know, and it's going not going to be Pa, but, uh, but I think it's pretty, I don't know, to me, it's, it's mystic and it's something beautiful. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Wow. So well explained. Thank you so much for <laughs> for sharing that. Yeah. I, it's um, people ask. I mean, you know, we actually get so many, um, or we've gotten so many emails and messages saying, "Can you please do a podcast about death?" And we'll probably do deeper dives to kind of unpack some of some of what you were just explaining in the future. But um, but yeah, I, I think it's just so empowering to realize that like the family that you're born into and the family you're connected to you can really based on you chanting really impact everybody else in the family alive or not and i mm-hmm. i remember when i i read that i was like mind blown and it actually made me feel so much closer to my grandparents who are all past mm-hmm. you know and just to feel like mm-hmm. a sense of sort of responsibility and i think even socially like society is gaining um such a greater understanding of like generational patterns and how much we we gain Mm -hmm. and how much we can pass down so even from that perspective like to live a life you know where you are being your best self it just the ripple effects are incredible so thank you for sharing all of that um i i do uh want to ask so i'm just thinking you know like for the way that you've described everything it's like um your heart and your spirit seems so large-hearted you know and like so expansive like you were really able at a time when I imagine you yourself were really suffering and really scared like you were really able to support your dad and bring people together um but there might be people listening who kind of feel like um I don't know how to get to that place I don't feel like Mm -hmm. I can do that or I'm still struggling so I'm just Mm -hmm. wondering for you personally like what was the struggle and and how did chanting kind of help you out of whatever your maybe darker moments were through this process. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for asking. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there were definitely dark moments too, right? Um, the whole getting the the change to going into hospice, um, the whole like um, getting on the, on the transplant list and needing, we needed uh, pediatric lungs. And, you know, even initially at the beginning, you know, with my dad with cancer, you know, it's it's grim uh the person that you know took care of your whole family that was the strong person the one the rock in the family going through that you know it's it's difficult to see and you know there is definitely moments of like man why is this happening why did this happen to my dad why is this happening to us um you know like 
we've been good people. Why, why is it that it happens to us? Um, and then, I mean, realistically, it's, you know, part of my dad's karmic makeup that kind of led him to where he is now. Um, you know, he just had some really big health karma that he had to overcome. And, you know, I'm hoping that through this life experience that he had and us going through it together, that we're finally able to break those chains. And then, then when he's reborn, that he doesn't have that. But yeah, for me, like, why was I able to kind of be my cheery self and, and kind of like encourage other people? Well, I think I, uh, as, as young men, right, um, this practice really, uh, the training that I've gone through this, and by training, I mean kind of supporting different events and, uh, you know, meeting with different people as they visit um, uh, my city and whatnot. It's like, I really got to be in the forefront and take action for things I want to get done. You know, I can't be in the background waiting for things to be done by other people because um, you'll be waiting forever, you know. And for me, my dad with my, my time with my dad was so limited already and so precious. That I didn't want to wait for it. And I wanted to make as many causes for him as possible. And for that to be enjoyable, I had to be the fun person. I had to be a radiant person to bring other people in as well, right? Because if it was just a gloom study, uh, no one would want to join us, you know? And then I think for me, more than anything is um, because I was doing all these different things, I already had a pretty solid relationship with the people that joined us. And, you know, just to see them come in and, you know, even if I hadn't spoken to them in a while, to see them support, to me, that was so encouraging. That made me beyond happy to know that someone would go so out of their way to help someone that isn't blood, you know, blood family. Yeah, yeah. like I said, we're all SGI family, but, you know, we're not related. Uh, why are you going so out of the way to help us? And then to me, so I initially, you know, came off as strong and wanting to, you know, do things for my dad because I want him to win. And then I was able to continue because I had so much support from everybody. And that mm -hmm. was encouraging to me. Um, yeah, we had so many people bring us food, you know, and like really <laughs> feed the family when we didn't have time to cook. I think that was a big thing for me wanting to kind of keep fighting. And I didn't want to give up on my dad. I mean, to be quite frank, you know, I don't want to give up on him. I want him to be with us. I want him to see, you know, see me get married. I want him to be there to see, you know, my kids too. And uh, so, yeah, I wasn't ready to give up. And I think that was a big part. Um, I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, I know that it totally, yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. And um, yeah, again, as as you're describing that, it, it makes me think of, um, I was just reading where was this? I think it was, um, anyway, I was, I was just reading also from Mikator recently, this, um, sort of like analogy that he makes in encouragement to people who are in, um, their like third stage of life as, as, um, we call it, like when you're, um, basically a senior citizen or approaching like the end of your life. Um, he gives this encouragement to make it a grand sunset, like, and just that visual, like, just like, it's, it sounds like that's what you're describing. Like this entire experience is like a grand sunset. <laughs> so that was, uh, that was what was in my mind as you were sharing. Um, so, so then one more, um, question, you know, about you personally again. So I'm, I'm wondering, you know, like after he passed, I'm sure that it was very difficult and you still had to go through grief and maybe you are still going through it, you know, a year later. So, did you how did chanting help you navigate the process of of grief or make sense of it or find a way kind of forward for your next step yeah um yeah that's a tough question um 
So, you know, I think, so kind of like, so go backtracking a little bit. So I think, you know, through this whole struggle, um, because my family really challenged to try and beat this and, you know, come out victorious, um, we were chanting together, right? So for me, the whole time I was chanting was for the family to be harmonious, right? And for, um, for my dad to get better. So, you know, overall, even though my dad passed, um, you know, because of all this causes that kind of went into this whole event, you know, um, studying together, um, encouraging other people through my dad's experience, um, chanting together as a family and even other people joining us. You know, I think we were able to really solidify our core as the Turan family. Um, and then, you know, that's, that's like a lot to say because I feel like we were already pretty strong as a family. We moved a lot, like I said, initially. So we didn't have too many friends growing up or we did, right? We had friends whenever we would move somewhere, but they weren't like lifelong friends and we would move and we'd, we'd leave them all and then try and make a new life again. But something that was always there was each other. And, you know, my dad would always say, Johnny, what comes first? And it's like, oh, family. <laughs> okay, oh, family. <laughs> so, so, uh, so, you know, I think even though we were already strong, it made us stronger. Um, so for me, it was kind of to chanting to kind of see, you know, what was the overall, for lack of a better word. So, you know, like if you do like math, right, plus minus, what's the overall balance kind of situation? So, I can't, I'm sorry, my brain is freezing again. It's been a long day. So no, kind of no, what okay. was the overall balance <laughs> at the end of this whole experience? And and then so, you know, that's kind of what, uh, what I was seeing, you know, it, was, uh, it made my family stronger and it made us unite more and then definitely put to proof this practice once again. You know, it wasn't mm -hmm. the outcome that we had expected, but overall, my dad went happily. Uh, he went loved and we got stronger and now we're making sure to take care of each other and um, and make sure that my mom is well taken care of too. So, you know, overall, yes, there was definitely initial huge negative in that balance, but um, I think, you know, we're back at a positive now. So yeah, my chanting was to be able to come out of this in a net positive balance. Again, <laughs> words are or getting out of my head, but that's it. <laughs> no, I, I totally get get what you mean. Um, yeah, it reminds me of that Gosho quote, um, suffer what there is to suffer, enjoy what there is to enjoy, and just continue chanting, nam myoho rengekyo, no matter what. Yes. It's, it's like that. You, yes. Yeah, I mean, we do have to suffer through these things because they are hard, but, but there's so much to enjoy and appreciate afterwards, it sounds like, and your family really got to experience that. So, um, yeah, so just two more questions. So in addition to everything that you were dealing with with your family, I imagine that there's the component of the fact that you're becoming a doctor. And I think what you were in your first year of residency in the middle of COVID while all of this was happening. Mm -hmm. So I, mm -hmm. I mean, I can't even begin to ask what, what that experience was like, but I, I just wonder, um, yeah, what impact did it have on your work as a doctor? Oh man, it was, it was hard. It was really hard. Um, so my dad passed only in the second month of my residency. Um, and then obviously, right, because I've been saying his condition was respiratory. 
So COVID, right, people are coming in with respiratory complaints and being short of breath and struggling to breathe, right, having to be intubated. So, you know, I was seeing my dad in every patient, you know, so I was at work trying to kind of just immerse myself in that to try and get away, but I couldn't, you know, everywhere I turn, it's like, oh man, you know, that's what Pa must have felt like. And, you know, that's the only thing I could think of. Um, but, you know, at the same time, this is also the peak of COVID. Like, I kid you not, like our ICUs were packed, right? People were getting intubated. And back then, when we first got started, if we intubated, you weren't coming out of that. You know, that was kind of like the reality of it. Um, and then at the same time, because everyone was so scared of what this virus was going to do, these patients were again all by themselves. So for me, coming from this background of where I was able to have the huge benefit of having my dad home, not by himself, I wanted to be able to provide some kind of um, comfort in the patients that were there. So on that second month, I was working on the inpatient service and I got assigned a whole bunch of COVID patients, right? And then there were some that were just there where we were just watching to make sure that they didn't get worse and they did fine. And there were some that were doing really bad. I remember this one lady, she came in and, and she was doing great. You know, she, I want to say she was maybe like in her late 80s, um, you know, super active lady before she came in, <laughs> like full of life. And she came in uh, not needing any oxygen, doing well. So I left one night and then the next day I came back and then she was needing oxygen. She was starting to require more and more and getting to the point that she was probably gonna have to get intubated, right? So at that point I'm I'm scared and I'm scared for her. Um, and the family can't come in. So, you know, I really kind of took it up like upon myself to make sure I was communicating as much as I could with the family. So I would call them, let them know all the updates. I would go speak with the patient, do the updates. We were able to arrange for FaceTime to happen. But if you can imagine, these are older patients. There's a lot of noise in the ICU. Zoom and FaceTime already sucks, right? Sometimes and you can't hear what's going on. So um, it's really difficult for them to hear each other. Mm -hmm. The patient, her voice was low. So the family couldn't really hear what she was saying. Even us in the room with her were having a hard time. Um, so, you know, that was happening. And then, you know, it came to the point where we had to decide, hey, uh, Miss So-and-so, you know, if it came to the point where you wanted, where you couldn't breathe anymore or, you know, your heart starts beating, um, you know, do you want us to do everything we can to make sure that you come back or try to make sure that you come back, you know? So do we do chest compressions and do we do, do we intubate you? And, uh, and then, you know, she thought about it hard and she talked to her family about it and, you know, they ended up deciding no. Um, that, you know, she, if the time came that she wanted to go and, and we respect that. So, you know, that's what the final decision was. Um, and then I don't know how, um, we were able to, uh, convince the administration to let the family come in. So, you know, we were able to get the family to bring in two people at a time, you know, everyone couldn't be in there at the same time, but to be there and kind of share these last moments with her. And so she was able to see everyone again. In, in the ICU. Um, and then, you know, I think she was holding off to that because then they left. And then that's very same night she passed away, you know? So um, mm -hmm. for me, I really took it as my own responsibility for being, you know, 
having such benefit of being able to spend that moment with my dad, I realized so many people weren't able to. So if I had the opportunity to try and do something for that family and that patient, I would do my very best to. And then, you know, to me, it was like a no brainer, you know, you do what you can. And then, so that was kind of like my mission at that point. But, you know, at the same time, it's like, oh man, each patient reminds me of Pa. So I was struggling a lot and, um, you know, thankfully, um, back back at my so you know back in my apartment you know I wasn't living by myself I had my significant other with me so Ayaka was here with me um, I had my close family that I could always call and you know so overall you know I had the support but yeah I mean there was a lot going through my head a lot going through my heart um, but yeah I just wanted to serve the best that I could and I think you know that's that's why you get in this profession you know you want to help people you really do and. Uh, so I, I made sure that I could the best I could the best way I could. Mm. Wow! Oh my goodness! And then you were your dad was at home even while you were seeing patients, right? So mm-hmm. I, I yeah, mean, that so must that have been was so scary, scary too. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! Yeah. This is well, wild. Well, yeah. So I wanted to go home to see him, right? <laughs> I wanted to go home, um, but I'm the most I'm the person that is going to be most dangerous to my dad because I could catch something and bring it back. So then, you know, it was hard. And then, you know, I wanted to come back so much. And there were times that I couldn't, you know. <laughs> I think it took so much courage from my brothers as well as my mom to say, no, you can't come home. <laughs> and uh, and initially, I didn't understand, uh, you know, just emotionally because, you know, I was like, I want to be home. You guys are home. I want to be home. But, you know, now, you know, looking back into him, I'm thankful that I didn't because, yeah, I probably definitely could have brought something home. Um, yeah. But, yeah, like you're saying, it was... <laughs> It was, it was, it was, it was scary. I mean, I guess I was scared for myself as well, but I was so focused on him and at the same time, you know, focused on, on, I guess the patient at that point after, after he passed. So, um, yeah, yeah, but I, yeah, just going home was something I wanted to do, but it was difficult. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I have to ask just a follow-up to that. Like I, because I think, you know, especially for people who are new to Buddhism, who are listening, it might be um, difficult for them to understand, you know, how do I say? So like, I imagine this was such a just all around high pressure, I mean, traumatic experience for you, essentially, where you're grappling with these, all of these very kind of high stress, highly emotional experiences, and you have to take care of everybody. Um how did chanting help or like what were you chanting about like what what role did like like when were you chanting and what were you trying to pull out of yourself when you were chanting just for people who are newer you know to understand like why chanting is helpful in moments like that yeah i mean um i was really chanting to kind of expand my life you know i want to be able to have you know because in life we (laughs) You, you will always struggle with time management and finding time to do all these different things. So for me, I wanted to be able to expand my life so that I could be most efficient when I was at work, get everything that needs to be done, take care of the patients the right way, right? But at the same time, making sure that I was courageous, right? Because again, this is my first year, right? I'm super nervous about everything. I'm barely a doctor, right? It's like, do I really... You know, can I really be making all these decisions? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of crazy because 
you know, we talk about courage, wisdom, and compassion, you know, when we, anytime we talk about this practice and, you know, those three are also so important in like the healthcare, you know, because I already talked about the two. And then obviously when you're dealing with patients and their families and even other physicians, like compassion is going to be so important, right? Because you'll see other physicians that are struggling a lot, you know, some people may not cope with it as well. You know, some people may have actually lost a loved one in this battle and, you know, they may have not been able to go because they were themselves at risk of, you know, infecting other people or whatever. So having the compassion to see that in other people as well and really be to support them, even though you might be struggling yourself. Um, so for me, it was really, yeah, so chanting so I can expand my life to make sure I can do everything, make sure I can find the time to do all the work stuff, make sure I can find time to speak with my family, make sure I can find time to do the studies, make sure I can find time to do my chanting, right? Those were like my core during that time. Mm -hmm. And then really just bringing out this best version of myself so that when I had to do work and I had to get serious, it could be, mm, enjoyable is not the right word, but as smooth as possible maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think making it concrete like that is so helpful because people could be in so many different situations, you know, I mean, just being a caretaker alone, whether you're a caretaker for an aging parent or you're a caretaker for someone who has a very serious illness, um, it can just be so depleting and exhausting. And so mm -hmm. to know that you can chant to bring out your be best self and like, be able to handle that kind of situation and take care of yourself and everyone is um, just such a useful tool. But, but then of course, you know, there's all these other components too of just grappling with death as it's happening and, and not being afraid of it. Um, mm -hmm. I'm just processing like this, everything you're saying is so encouraging. I'm just like, <laughs> this is, this is such a amazing episode. Um, I guess so. So we should wrap up, but um, I, I, so, you know, we started, when we started, you shared how you became a doctor or you pursued this path in medicine because you were so inspired by the great care that you received from people who were what you're describing, who were compassionate, who you felt like you could trust and you want to be, you know, one of them. And so I'm wondering, you know, after this, this whole experience, both of COVID and with your family, um, mm -hmm. what your dream is now for the future. Yeah. You know, so I think everything I'm learning right now in the in the medical field, I think it doesn't only apply to the medical field, but, you know, kind of also like in just general life. Um, so, you know, obviously I do want to eventually have like other residents and even medical students come by and I would love to proctor them and kind of be like their mentor. If I can change, you know, someone's, uh, if I can <laughs> inspire someone else to kind of go into family medicine, you know, that would be great because um. You know, just like a side note, so obviously we have all these different specialties in medicine and then, you know, the more specialized you are, it's kind of looked upon as kind of like the more prestigious specialty to be in. So the more general things nowadays, it's not looked upon as kind of like the more prestigious thing, right? So I want, mm. I want to be able to inspire other people that, you know, the prestige isn't what's important about medicine. You know, it's not it's not why you became a physician. It's not so that you can be called, you know, this kind of surgeon or this kind of specialist. You know, let's really go back to why you probably want to do this, which is to, to help people, right? And then so, you know, if I can inspire some others to kind of see that, you know, 
family mess and gets a bad rep, but you know, you can help so many other people. I think, you know, that, that would be kind of a, a huge benefit for me. That's incredible. I mean, yeah, I mean, whole communities can be changed. Um, so, so final question, um, cause I always yeah. like to close the podcast this way, which is, um, if you could give one piece of advice to somebody who's listening, who might be new to Buddhism, um, but currently mm -hmm. dealing, um, either with loss of a loved one or, um, maybe, you know, uh, illness that someone they care about has, what piece of advice would you give them? Oh man. Yes. I guess, you know, kind of what put me at ease a little bit when Pa passed away was kind of what we talked about. So, you know, so he's the wave while he's here and he'll go back into the ocean, which is the universe. Right. Um, and then although we may not see this person anymore, we can't concretely talk to them. You can still make causes for that person for their karmic um, causes. And, you know, even though you may not see this person anymore, you can still be connected and by chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, you're doing them such great, um, I don't know if service is the right word, but you know, you're helping them so much to become a bigger, greater wave, you know, when the wave comes back from the ocean. Um, so yes, it's obviously going to be difficult. You lost someone that you loved, right? Someone that was so close to you that now the world seems so different without them. Um, and then, you know, once one of those things, I'm sure people will keep saying as well, you know, it'll get easier with time, but with this Buddhist practice, you can keep making causes for that person. And to me, that's magical. And to me, it's mystic. And to me, that's a reason why to keep chanting so that you can change that for that person that you lost. I don't think I can pull out a single takeaway from Jonathan's story because there were so many, except that the power of chanting Nam Yoho Renge Kyo extends far beyond what we can even imagine. And no matter what circumstance we might be facing, there is always a way to process it with the greatest compassion, both for the people around us and ourselves. We'll definitely address this topic again in the future. In the meantime, as a reminder, if you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving us a rating or review on the podcast app, which helps the show get discovered. And of course, as always, to get connected locally or ask any questions, email us at connect at sgi-usa.org. That's all for today, and we'll see you next week.